everyone, and welcome to the SIS Baseball Podcast for the month of March. It's Women's History Month, and we're doing our second annual Women in Baseball show. In just a moment, we'll be joined by A's minor league catching coach and women's baseball national team coach, Veronica Alvarez. We're also going to talk prospects with Fangraphs writer Tess Taruskin and baseball research with my colleague Sarah Thompson, who just presented at the Sabre Analytics Conference. We welcome in Veronica Alvarez. Veronica is the head coach of the U.S. women's national baseball team and a minor league catching instructor for the Oakland A's. And she's a firefighter and paramedic. So the first question that I wanted to ask you is the same one that we asked for anyone that played. Recount for us the first great defensive play that you can remember making. Well, I don't know if it was great. It was just something that was very meaningful or something that I obviously remembered and made an impact. But I remember my first tryout in baseball when I was little and I played baseball amongst the boys. So that year I was the only girl in the league and they put everyone, they would have these like draft tryouts at our park in Miami and they put all the players at third base to make the throw across the field and just got evaluate in that sense. And I remember coming up for the ground ball and the first, the coach that was standing at first base, he got closer to me because he thought I wasn't going to make it to first and my arm was my strength. So I got it right to him, hit him in the chest. And he, I remember him being surprised and being taken aback. Was it not long after that, that you got put at catcher? Pretty much. I was my first season playing in that league, they needed a catcher. And so my coach said, who wants to catch? And I eagerly rose my hand and my mom was like, no, 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 no. She doesn't want to, but obviously I got what I wanted and I, and I was a catcher pretty much ever since. Nice. So where was the point at which it really kind of took off for you? I absolutely love the game since I was little. I mean, it's exactly what I wanted to do as a little girl, even before I have an older brother and even before he got into the game, as far as playing in an organized team and league, I wanted to play and I was like eagerly waiting for my opportunity. So uh, as far as when it got off, uh, when it got to a start for me, loving it and wanted to be involved in it in every way possible, right from the get-go. But I just had success at a young age. Again, my arm was my strength. So I pitched a little bit against the boys and and caught, obviously, whenever I could and played some third base. But that just every experience I got just kept feeding the love for it and, and wanting me wanting to get better. And so I was the kid that asked my dad to go outside to practice or I was throwing the ball against the, the garage door or above the garage the entire day, you know, until it was dinner time. So um, I've always loved it. But as far as my baseball career, I went I switched to softball around 10 years old, kind of a lot of times what girls were having to do back then but I got an opportunity to play in college at Villanova University and then I got an opportunity to play in Spain after that which was also a wonderful experience and all of those experiences were incredible as far as the people I met the experiences I got but then I was able to come back to baseball and I played on the women's national team in 2008 through 2015 I'm really grateful for that experience because I feel like as as women especially we don't really develop and don't really learn how to use our bodies to their best possible in the best possible way until we're probably about 26 years old. So for the most part, most college athletes are done with that. And most female athletes are done with their career. So I felt very fortunate to get another opportunity to play the game. So, I mean, I think my baseball career took off in that moment when I was able to get to a USA baseball tryout and then make the team. Now, let's explain the roles that you have currently. The U.S. national team, it's not like they play daily or weekly. What is, how often does it play and when will it compete next? The women's national team, usually our, our events are every other year. 
we play a World Cup. Then in the in-between year, we either play a World Cup qualifier as far as a Pan American Games or or some sort of international event. It's been a little bit different, but more teams are trying to participate in the World Cup. So in the last few years, we've had a qualifying event, which has been wonderful to add another event to the calendar. My last year playing was in 2015, and it was our first time in a pan, in the actual Pan American Games where it was a multi-sport event, which was really incredible to experience. I feel like as female athletes, being an Olympic being in an Olympic sport and being in the Olympics is like an ultimate goal. So it wasn't the Olympics, but it was a step below it. It was our first time in a multi-sport event, like I said, and and we won a gold medal. And just being able to live in Athlete Village was incredible. But for the most part, it's World Cups every two years, in between years, some sort of international event. But yeah, the women are really incredible. They they train on their own and and come into camp ready to go, ready to compete abroad and it's really a certain level of dedication and love for the game that's necessary for that. And I, I love getting to coach them and help them succeed in their sport. How deep is the talent pool? Well, currently we've, we're pretty good right now. So like I mentioned, it was hard in the past because girls were having to switch over to softball so early. But there are a lot of girls playing high school baseball and just a lot of the girls that I've fought for opportunities within the game of baseball. So it's allowed them to develop and and come to us a little bit more mature in their in their level of play. But also MLB has been hosting camps for girls in baseball for the last about four to five years. And that has really helped bridge the gap in, in the opportunities that the girls get. So that it's allowed them to stay in the sport longer, develop more physically, mentally, everything. So then we end up getting a pretty solid pool of players coming out and tra- uh, trying out for the national team. Terrific. And as far as the A's coaching, so you're in spring training working with the minor league catchers. I saw a picture on your Instagram. It looked like it was a class of about 14 of them. And I think you just got a 15th because you just traded for one. What does it entail to, to work with them? It's, you know, obviously catching is my favorite. And I think the catchers are the best ones out there, but they're all good. I just mess with everyone else. But the catchers are definitely the workhorses. So it's fun to get to, to be with them. You know, they get their hitting in and then we get out there while they're catching sides in the bullpen, then we're working on their individual stuff and, and trying to get them as many reps as possible in all sorts of every area of catching, from receiving to footwork and transfer, blocking everything that you practice at the you know lower levels, getting up to this spot, we keep going over it. And it's something that we obviously we're trying to be perfect, right? If they were perfect, they would already be major leaguers. So we're really trying to break everything down, refine everything, and make them as, as good as possible. Did you work with Sean Murphy when he was coming up? I did. I what, did. What, what did you work with him on? We worked on everything. Again, it was it was a mix of everything. Obviously, some do certain parts of their game better than others, but it's consistency what we want and what we're trying to strive for. So it with Sean, for instance, that year, that was the year he became a big leaguer. He had the ability to be consistent in all parts of of catching, which is what set him apart from the rest. He also has the demeanor of a catcher. I mean, the way he carries himself is in a professional manner, which he's always, almost always done. You know, at some point he learned it or whatnot, but, but he was here that my first year at spring training. And, and I could tell just by looking at him that that was a big leaguer. And in terms of pitch framing, that's, I know that's one of the things that he's rated particularly well in. What did you see in him with that? And what did you refine maybe in what he does there? Yeah. I mean, he, He's really good at making it one movement, the, the receiving, right? It's not a two-part movement. He's very smooth in it, able to 
manipulate those pitches by like I kind of teaches by using all three of his joints and his arm, his shoulder, his elbow and his wrist. He's able to kind of cut corners with the bend of his elbow and not make it as obvious if he was just using his shoulder, if that makes any sense. But he's very smooth with that. And again, it was just it's repetition to be as consistent as possible. So the A's have a prospect, Tyler Soderholm. He's only 20, first round pick 2020, caught 38 games last year in A ball. A new prospect comes in like that, and you kind of get your your first crack at him in conjunction with the A's major league catching coach. What do you work on with him? Well, we kind of see where he's at physically, mentally, and and we just try to refine everything as much as possible. A lot of the times, like I said, they're really good at receiving, but maybe they can clean up their footwork a little bit more. So it's at first, it's really just seeing what level they're at, what they have, and and what we can make better. I have a technical question because we had Austin Hedges and Max Stassion previously, and they're two guys who catch differently. Austin Hedges is a glove tapper where he taps the ground, which I've heard you talk about. And Max Stassi is more kind of like of a, I think what you're describing classically, like a stick it kind of catcher. Do you have a, I, I think I know the answer to this already, but do you have a preference with that? I think, well, both forms are just a form of a pre-pitch movement. I think it's dependent on the catcher and their ability to do so and, and what they need for timing. If whatever happens after that initial pre-pitch movement, being at a tap on the ground or just relaxing your glove, if that all works, then you don't get rid of that tap on the ground, right? So I think it's very catcher specific. I think the relaxing of the glove is a little bit more of a consistent move as far as more people can make that happen, do it well. The tapping the glove, I think, is a lot harder as far as timing for for the majority of we're going to talk about. It's a catcher-specific move. The end goal, right, is is or when you're doing your pre-pitch movement is to keep the glove below the ball. As long as you're doing that in whatever way possible, then and then can be smooth after that in, in the way you manipulate pitches, and it really doesn't matter what your initial move is. How do you use data in your work? I mean, we go through as far as their percentages as what kind of receiver they are. Are they stronger glove side or are they stronger arm side? And then we could clean that up, whether it be a footwork issue or just the way their stance is set up behind the plate, or is it a timing issue? Are they getting beat on, you know, pitchers with higher velocity and more break on their ball? So it's a fun way to look at it, right, is to put a number behind what we see already. But it's really just confirming what we've already been able to tell by analyzing the catchers. Well, I was going to ask, is there any data for catchers that you find to be a little misleading? I, I wouldn't say so. I think it's it's hard to, we don't use so much that it's, it's overwhelming in any sense. I mean, I love the aspect that you could rewatch footage of yourself receiving and, and making throws down to the bases. So, but as far as numerically, I, I don't think, you know, there's, it's an overwhelming amount of information. Who's your favorite catcher to watch besides Murph? That's a hard one. I can't go away from Murph. (laughs) I tried. I I gotcha. All time favorite catcher. Yeah, Yeah, sure. My all-time favorite catcher is Jorge Posada. Mostly, though, because of his demeanor, the way he carried himself, and the effect he had on his team when he was in the game. Essentially an all-business, super intense kind of catcher. I think it's a leadership position that he, he, he exuded leadership and his team responded well to him. Yep, and I know that there are some people that have said that he would be a good manager if he chose to pursue that, as most catchers seem to be. 
Now, the women, the number of women in coaching in baseball has risen considerably. There's been a lot of attention paid to that, particularly last year to this year. Is there something you'd like to speak to as to where it's going and where, as far as seeing other Latino women hired? Yeah, I'm excited to see where it's going. I, it, I love that we've gotten this far in such a short period of time. We, as women in the game, have high expectations of the other women in the game. So I'm very excited to see them and and just, you know, I, I think that the women that have gotten involved are hard workers. They know what's the challenge that's set, set out in front of them. And then we also all recognize that it's it's bigger than ourselves. So we're here to help, you know, in any way possible for the other women that are trying to get into the game and give whatever feedback we we can possibly give for them that would help them and benefit them in, in making a start in it. But, you know, I have a lot of players on my national team and a lot of former players that would be great candidates for it. So anytime that they mention an interest in it, I'm all for it. And I know they would make an impact on the game. What's the end goal with regards to women playing baseball? Well, I I have personal goals for women in the game, but I I really want to see it be an Olympic sport. I want to see it on the national level. I want to see like a U20 team to create opportunities for that younger group where they don't necessarily just fall out of the game because they don't make the national team. We have a lot of talented, you know, mid-20s, 30-year-old players that have a college under their belts. They're mature women that have learned how to use their bodies. So to be 16 and compete with that is difficult. But I understand I don't want to lose them again because they didn't make the national team. I want to create opportunities for them to continue to grow so that when it comes time again to try out, they're at a different level. But those are my goals for the national team. And I would love to see women in the game, but I want to see... It's a hard one. I think it's going to be, it has to be the right woman because there's going to be so much pressure on her to, to, to be successful that we understand as women in this game, women in, in male dominated worlds that the, what we represent and the weight of our representation. And if you don't perform, it's the gender and it's not just a personal situation. So one player going in there and potentially being the wrong player that was chosen going to put a lot of pressure on that player so I think that's going to be big is making sure it's the right women representing at first not because you know such and such player can't do it but just because of that added pressure and what it means for the rest of the girls that come behind them certainly last question I was reading an interview you did with Gemma Kaneko of Cut 4 a couple of years ago and my favorite answer was your last one you talked about the personality trait mentioned for uh, needed for catchers you mentioned one in particular and I was just wondering if you could recount that and recount what the most important traits are that catchers need but what i always say a catcher is needs to be selfless and that's i feel like the word that describes it the most is you're there and you work on your own personal skills but for the benefit of your pitcher for the benefit of your team again it goes back to you know that exuding leadership and i think in any relationship people feel if you're being selfish and it ruins the relationship so when a catcher and a pitcher are trying to have a relationship in order for the game, you know, for them to have success in the game, you have to be able to to let down. It's weird because you want success on your own, but your success needs to be for everyone else. And I think that's a very important trait. You know, catchers barely get BP time and we're always working on the physical aspects of behind the dish and not the necessarily the offensive part of the game. But obviously both are very important. But again, it, it goes back to wanting the best for your pitcher and for your team. Veronica Alvarez, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for having me. Before we get to Tess Taruskin, I want to tell you to check out our other two podcasts. Our football podcast, Off the Charts, is currently very NFL draft-focused. 
equal attention paid to scouting and stats, and your new basketball podcast, Playing in Space, which covers the NBA and does deep discussions on basketball philosophy. Get them wherever you get your podcasts. We're joined by Tess Taruskin, prospects writer from Fangraphs. You can read her work on there regularly. Hey, Tess, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So you're based out in California, and I want to start with California, Arizona area, the Cactus League. On the Fangraphs big board, we'll be referring to that frequently throughout this conversation, two players of note, Bobby Witts, two behind Adley Rutschman, and you've got Julio Rodriguez, four. What do you like about them, and how much of an impact are they going to have with the Royals and Mariners this season? Well, it's uh, there's not a lot not to like about either of them, to be honest. They're both sort of up there for a reason. It's not a controversial pick to call either of those your top prospects. Well, it would be a controversial controversial <laughs> to put him above Adley, maybe, but not not within the top five. They're both just so well-rounded. Bobby Wood Jr., like, if you're going to have a 30-home-run 30 30 run threat at a premium position, like... Can't really, can't really fault their, their uh, appreciating that out of him. And he looks so much like a baseball player. He looks so much like a shortstop. He looks like he fits the part. He looks, he's got, you know, he resonates on sort of the same frequency as like a Trevor Story type. So you can kind of see why people would be excited about that. Even though, you know, his defense, his defense is really is still above average and will definitely stick at shortstop. But it's not as elite as you see it from some other d- defensive shortstops who that is carrying their profile. He, his bat is still carrying his profile, but he, he boosts it by above average defense. And it's just sort of similar, to, similarly true to Julio. His defense is also, you know, above average and slightly, you know, more above average than, than wits would be. It's really fun to watch him track a, track a ball out in the outfield. He makes such good routes and keeps guys from, you know, getting a little extra greedy with those base paths. And then that the way he swings, the way he gets to his power and um, adjusts his swing, which is really interesting to see where you can see different types of power swings from a guy as opposed to changing your swing at the, you know, at the to sacrifice the power in favor of contact. You, Julio is a guy who you can see adjusting his swing to, to different types of power, which is kind of cool. I want to go back to Bobby Witt just for a second. Um, you mentioned above average defensively. Our DR, so we track minor league defensive runs saved. We weren't particularly super high on him, but there was one thing, and it made me think maybe it had to do with how the Royals were playing him, that he wasn't necessarily rating well, particularly well at this point, on balls hit to his left. So I was thinking about up the middle that mm-hmm. maybe he wasn't necessarily being played there. But one thing that we did have that was very much in his favor, we track what we call good fielding plays too. And he had a he had them in very large quantities for someone who was a minor league shortstop. Mm-hmm. Projecting defense, I feel like, is really tricky and really challenging. And we'll we'll yeah. get to that in a second. Actually, we can we can we can touch on that now. How tricky is it? Really tricky. It's just it's it's the part of the profile that is hardest to quantify. So for that reason, it's hardest to find comps that you can really rest your hat on or assume that something's going to lead to that next phase of development because you've seen it before, because that is just so case by case when you're not quite sure how to quantify or how to gauge the progress defensively as you are with like the extensive metrics you have for offense. Like there's not really, I don't really have much more to say than that. It's tricky. It's something that like when you're actually going out to watch guys is particularly tricky because in game, it's just such a crapshoot. Someone like a, at a premium position, obviously, you're going to see more out of them, likely see more out of them. If you go to one game or a series or even a whole week's worth of games, 
but like I had an experience. I was, I'm in the Bay area now, but I was in Chicago up until the end of last year. And I went to a high, couple high school games there to see a guy, this middle infielder named Noah Smith, who was down at Marist, I believe. And he, all the games I went to, he was playing second base. And I was just like, I need you at short, kid. I need to see you. I need to see what you look like in a game. And so I just never really got a chance to see him, what he looked like in a game. And I hadn't been able to see him at showcases. So it just sort of feels like just he swung and he missed. It couldn't, I couldn't have, have seen more than that. And even when you go to a college game or something like that, you're really only seeing it defensively. You're seeing whatever happens in the game and then practice and that's it's just hard to gauge anything on that you can't really gauge same way you can't really gauge from a batting pack batting practice what they'll look like in a game it's very true when you're just taking grounders on the infield so that's where the difficulty comes from a lively perspective and from a metrics perspective so you really just have to be able to trust what you're seeing in a guy trust what you aren't seeing in a guy and be able to draw the conclusions from that and then kind of wait and see and see how how right you were just like any prospect We have challenges with the defensive metrics at the minor league level. The one thing that we've hung our hat on is that it has been pretty good so far at pegging the elite guys. Like we knew Matt Chapman was going to be really good right Mm -hmm. from the start. That's the one that we kind of point to regularly. I I mentioned Witt's defense. I didn't feel confident with our numbers in terms of Rodriguez. The sample size wasn't particularly large with him in terms of what we've tracked. So Mm -hmm. let's stay with the Royals for a second because the Royals have a number of really high impact bats at the top of their farm system with uh, MJ Melendez and Nick Prado. MJ Melendez, this is kind of a doll. He hit 41 home runs. He was the number, he was like our number one exit velocity prospect guy. Shocker. He hit so many home runs. (laughs) Prado's numbers were similarly very good. What are your impressions of them? Well, so they are different, obviously. MJ Melendez is just a ton of fun to watch. He's another guy where if you watch not just that he's hitting the ball so hard and out of the park, but how he's hitting it. So the ball so, so well and out of the park, it's just any part of the zone. If you look at all his home runs this past season, he, they were all over the zone, all types of pitches. And he just muscled them out. Like he, I saw him like basically pull them off of the shoestrings of the opposite batting batter's box and somehow still push it out to the opposite field, which is just what you like to see. That means that he's able to adjust. And obviously he has quite a pedigree in terms of having come up with major league history and his family and things like that. It's always helpful to kind of get that mindset at a young age. And you can definitely tell it with, especially for a catcher where you have to be a little bit, you know, the baseball IQ comes into a lot more regularly. He's so athletic that he can kind of make up for his, his size behind the plate by being really flexible and, and moving well back there. And yeah, I think that like he, he kind of is the kind of guy who, they'll find ways to get him into the big league roster or get him at bats. I should say, even before Salvador Perez truly vacates. So, you know, you saw him at third base a little bit this year. It's the kind of bat that you want to build around. It's that's so, so impactful, like you said. And then Nick Prado is almost the opposite. Nick Prado, like, don't get me wrong. He's, his power is insane too. It's a little harder for him to get to it. He sells out for it more so than, than Melendez does. And then he's not, he's at first base. So that puts so much more pressure on his ability to make up for the hit tool and not just rely on the power while keeping that power still in place. It's just, it's such a different equation. So the way that you have to gauge, they both had such huge offensive years this year, but the way, the sort of ways that you have to gauge and compare them have so much to do with what you're expecting them at the next level and as they develop. 
we've talked about, they put up huge numbers at the minor league level. The AL Central is particularly loaded with the Tigers, with Torkelson and Riley Green. And I was mm-hmm. looking at Dan Zimborski's projections for both of them. And I was very surprised because normally the projections for rookies, you know, you see numbers where you'll get like a 220, 290, 380 slash line. And mm-hmm. all over the place with the top prospects that Fangraphs has, you're seeing 250s and 260s and 330s and 460s slugging, which is awesome. Right. Right. So a month ago, you did a piece on catchers and the high-end mm-hmm. catching prospects. We talked about Melendez certainly being one of them. There's an abundance of them. You also noted mm-hmm. that this comes as a t- at a time where we're getting closer to automatic ball and strike calling. So let's talk about a couple of catchers. Adley Rutschman is currently hurt, but what do you expect him to be? I think he's he's as good as they say he is. You know, like watching him play, it's hard not to immediately buy into it, even if you're watching him have a bad game. Just like the... And I... I say that as though he has a lot of bad games he doesn't it's just that when he does you can see it not phasing him which is an impressive ability for a guy at his stage in development and he never seems to slump you know he'll always bounce back quickly and yeah it like it's just a, a complete package with just like room for improvement that is the only thing that held him back from being on the same tier as someone like you know wander franco or like an 80 prospect but yeah, he's the type of guy where when when I say that there's room for improvement, there's also confidence that he'll improve. Like it's not just that there are holes that they're concerned about how he's going to approach. And what I'm really talking about is his receiving more of like the fine tunes, the finely tuned aspects and the nuances of the catching defense. And that specifically is something that might be severely impacted by automatic balls and strike calling. If he doesn't have to frame the ball anymore, he doesn't have to worry about how exactly he can kind of manipulate his body to better get his ball, the ball out of his hand to throw it a second. He can just focus on getting the ball out of his hand to throw it a second, not worrying about what he's showing the umpire in the process. But, you know, obviously he is just sort of like the no brainer of the bunch. He's the one that you can see it just playing and playing in his day, watching him play, how impactful he is on the team, on, a, on any given team and on, on the field as, as he's progressing through the, through the system. So you mentioned pitch framing there for him. It, it's funny with the, with our numbers, we actually have him pretty high with regards to expected strikes. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he's getting more strikes than expected. Yeah, I, he is. He's a great pitch framer. Don't get me wrong. I just think that if he doesn't have to focus on that anymore, it would make the rest of his game play up. That's no longer an aspect that matters for a for a catcher. Then that just opens up the uh, ability to focus on the more on the areas that would be better suited to improvement. He's he's one where that that's just like tiny tweaks and subtle nuances that could be improved. They're much better. Like I think the other example is another guy way lower on the list, but who also will be playing on a triple A team that's going to have that ABS system in place. And that's Corey Lee, who is a much more lopsided prospect. He's propped up by his defense. He's got this great arm and he's got power that he can get to occasionally, but he just doesn't hit yet. And that's sort of the biggest question mark about him. There's no question about whether he can stay as a catcher. That's that's for sure. But if they can add the hit tool because they don't have to focus on the defensive aspects of catcher that will be alleviated by that ABS system, that just, you know, it just changes the equation in terms of how he can develop and how quickly he can develop and how they can focus his development. So you're in the Bay Area. I feel like I should ask you about Bay Area related catchers, Joey Bart and Bailey in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. we talked with Veronica Alvarez briefly about Tyler Soderstrom. What would you say about those three? Yeah, well, so Soderstrom is an interesting one because we at Fangraphs have, have 
long-term project him as moving to first base seems all the more likely now that Shea Langoliers is in the A's system. But with him, like he, his bat is so good. He's so good at hitting in games consistently that another aspect of catcher that's just impossible to ignore is just that you get so dinged up back there. It's so easy to just sort of take little, little bumps and bruises that can amount to more over time, or at the very least, just keep you out of one game a week or whatever it is. And with a bat like Soderstrom, that's just not what you want to get out of him. That's not how you optimize what package is. So that's the, my take on Soderstrom. He, you know, he, he was never a defense first catcher. He didn't really even catch in his, in, at, in high school the year before he was drafted, mostly because of the other players that were on his team in high school. But, you know, that does, it does speak to what they even back then were seeing out of him and what they were getting out of him as a player. With the Giants, with Joey Bart and Patrick Bailey, I mean, Joey Bart has, is just such a, an interesting case because he's been kind of dealt such unfortunate hands and has not miraculously still ended up with a royal flush, you know, like he can't, he had no control over the disruptions and the advancements that he saw before he was able or ready for them. And what that did to his development, not to mention the hype, you know, you got to assume that like there's, there's an element of human sort of pressure that he's adding to himself when he is seen as this next, you know, especially, you know, coming in and trying to fill the shoes of someone like Buster Posey. It's just always a lot of pressure on him that he wasn't able to completely capitalize on the spotlight in ways that are completely understandable, but that are also detrimental to his pro- progress or, or his standing within the system. And I think that's pretty clear now. It's, it seems within the system that Patrick Bailey is really being more likely or being seen as more likely to be the long-term catcher that they build around with Joey Bart still sort of seeing like, well, if the bat comes, we'll find a place for him rather than like he's our catcher. And that it's just such an interesting dynamic. You want to root for these guys. You want people to be able to like prove those naysayers wrong and get past the hurdles. But the development is so precise and the process by which players develop and the time they're supposed to be allowed or they should ideally be allowed to develop is so important. And it's something that you can't just assume doesn't matter. I mean, I don't think anybody assumes it doesn't matter, but you can't just like assume that someone can work outside that system and still progress the way that he would have given a regular or a more traditional path to the upper levels. Yeah, Joey Bart's strikeout to walk ratio when he did get the look in the majors was definitely something I think that that frightened some people off of him mm-hmm. and made them think that that perhaps that Bailey would be the future guy. All right, yeah. so the last question here. I think it's fair to say that within our company and outside of our company too, there are a lot of people that would very much like to be you when it comes <laughs> to being a writer for uh, FanGraphs, when it comes to specifically being a prospects writer for FanGraphs. We have a lot of people that are very interested in scouting that work for us. What advice would you give to them, regardless of you know man, woman, otherwise? What advice would you give them? Well, I think that you know, obviously, working in prospects is a very unique approach to the industry. For me personally, what it what it it was sort of the next step in in a path that I had sort of started just by getting a degree in film. Weirdly enough, I mean, I guess it's not that weird. Video is all over the place these days. But my approach was more technical and kind of branching out from the skill set to include my passion, you know, the thing that I was most interested in applying it to. So for me, I, I think developing a skill or, you know, some specific 
tool set within your own tool set or, you know, a tool within your own tool set that can differentiate you or otherwise give you some sort of elevated level of understanding. For me, when I got my degree in film, I was kind of computing and digital media, so kind of film editing specifically. And I immediately got a job making highlight videos for, for high school athletes who are trying to get college recruiters' attention. It's like dozens of sports, so not just baseball. But what that ended up doing was not only did I get the muscle memory of editing video quickly and in a way that, you know, creates side-by-sides or overlays and things like that that are helpful tools in evaluating, but it also meant that I was watching a lot of bad baseball. Like I really kind of got a, a huge helping of really low-level baseball, which seems like it might get boring or not really be helpful when you're talking about like seeing the differences between the elite prospects. But it really does. Like you really kind of get a sense for what the worst sort of outcome of the minor differences in these players, if they don't correct this little thing, this is what it'll look like in five years kind of thing, which is really helpful. And obviously has little to do with gender, but is not necessarily a pathway or career path that's sort of obvious to women or non-men, I should say. Not something that like for me specifically, I really didn't consider pursuing this for a long time, just because just because I'd never really seen it, seen someone who, you know, I could resonate with or relate to. I was lucky to grow up in the Bay Area reading Susan Slusser. So I definitely had examples. I'm not saying that I had never heard of a female analyst or female sports writer or anything like that. But it's just it was harder to sink my teeth into it assuming that I could just start going to games and and sitting and people would recognize me as someone who was there for that purpose because it doesn't quite fit the the stereotypes that you're expecting out of a scout. So I guess really what I'm saying is like, find a way in and then commit to it. You know, think of the way that that can lead to the next thing and that can lead to the next thing. And from, I mean, you know, just like in any industry, it really does matter who you know, how you're getting to know people. I found my way to fan graphs through a friend I made on the slow pitch softball league. He is now an area scout and sort of, we would talk baseball all the time. And I was able, because he got more into the evaluation side of things, I was able to really pick his brain and learn more about how I could forge my own path in a similar direction. So that's really just my own experience. That's how I, I went about it and how I built towards it. There is no one <laughs> pathway. And I think that Keeping in mind your own personal progress and development along the way is also really important. Building an expertise, finding sub-expertise is certainly, though, I think ranks high on the list, really, for any profession that you go into. It's something that I've certainly recommended. Tess Ruskin, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. Thank you very much. Before we get to our last guest, I want to note a new addition to the SIS family. We've hired a VP of baseball, Bobby Scales. That's a name that might be familiar to baseball fans. Bobby played parts of two seasons with the Cubs, 14 pro seasons overall. He's gone on to work in the front office for both the Angels and the Pirates. You can learn more about him at the SIS website, sportsinfosolutions.com. Our final guest today is SIS research analyst Sarah Thompson. Sarah presented at this past weekend's Sports Analytics Conference put on by Sabre with help from SIS on a topic oft talked about but not often researched. And we'll use that as a tease. We'll get to it in a second. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first of all, let's just do a little introduction here. Tell us about who you are and what you do for our company. Yeah, so I'm Sarah Thompson, and I'm a research analyst in the research and development department at SIS. And that basically means I sift through our baseball data and I turn it into analysis. 
the video scouts here at Sports Info Solutions track anything and everything. And we've provided details on this show about that in the past, talking about the defensive side, talking about some of the base running metrics, talking about some of the other things that we track, umpires, many different things. Sarah reviewed data for something that we started tracking last year that's pretty cool that people love to talk about, particularly when things go wrong, which our video scouts tracked all season. So explain your third base coach research. Yeah. So like you said, we started collecting third base coach data this year because as far as we know, teams and SIS don't have any data on third base coach signals and outcomes. So if clubs want to run at peak efficiency, they need to be able to evaluate what kinds of decisions are being made by their third base coaches and how those decisions pan out. But they can't do that without hard data. So with this third base coach signal data, it's possible to identify opportunities for improvement and improve base, rest, base running efficiency. So a lot of different things that could be looked into here, and this all feels super timely with Certainly last year's World Series, last year's postseason, and the aggressiveness of Ron Washington, who's been a guest on this podcast. So let's dig in. What exactly did you look into? Yeah, so I looked at a few things. I looked at signal and outcome trends across the board and in various circumstances. Across the board, if we're talking non-force out situations, we found that runners are sent about a little over 40% of the time. And when they're sent, they're thrown out about 2% of the time. And then if we look at, you know, in terms of score situation, uh, we found that send rates are higher than average when teams are leading and lower than average when teams are tied or trailing by at least two runs. And an interesting tidbit is that we also found that when the home team is super conservative in extra innings when the game is tied, they send runners about 35% of the time, which is a lot lower than the average send rate of, I mentioned, around 40%. So what we're doing here, essentially, is we're establishing baselines for potentially for future study. But I'm curious, with one year's worth of data, what stood out from a team perspective? As far as teams go, the leaders in send rates were the Braves, the Brewers, and the Astros. Ron Washington. Yeah, Ron Washington. And the trailers in send rates were the Mets, the Nationals, and the Athletics. And then if we look at which teams are getting thrown out on their sends, it's the Mariners and the Athletics who get thrown out the most and the Blue Jays and the Phillies who get thrown out the least. And what's interesting here is that the Athletics, who I just mentioned, were really conservative as far as sending runners go. Other runners are still getting thrown out at one of the highest rates in MLB, which doesn't really sound optimal. No, definitely not. There were a couple of players for whom, I guess it was almost kind of like a fun fact kind of tidbit that you brought up at the conference. And it was the idea of players ignoring signals because we got into that too. And and this will all be posted at the Sabre website. You can find that. It'll be tweeted out a lot. What did you find in terms of players? Yeah. So like you mentioned, we track the players if they ignore signals by their third base coach. And of the signals, we were able to identify without a doubt, identify. The two players who ignored the most signals in MLB were Mark Hanna and Juan Soto. And they both had four ignored signals, which doesn't sound like a lot because it isn't. Ignoring signals isn't really common at all, but we still track it. Canna and Soto, they only ignored signals when approaching third, which is interesting. And both were called safe most of the time. Canna was four for four on running through stop signs and Soto was three for four. And in particular, 
I found Soto's instances of stop sign running extra interesting because they were only when the team was down by two or tied. Lots of things to consider for future research, certainly with this, both from an individual player perspective, team perspective, and then the macro perspective, which I think a lot of this presentation was about. What's on the docket for potential future research? Yeah, I think the big one is being able to build some type of model that given all the variables at play in an event like batted ball distance or runner speed or fielder talent and potentially getting as granular as the weather if samples allow for it, a model that gives us a probability of success, meaning a base runner arriving safely on a third base coach send to third or to home. And from here, using this model and these probabilities, we can better evaluate the decisions that third base coaches are making in the game. Are you going to watch the Phillies a little bit differently this year because of your your knowledge of all this uh, information? Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, like watching the Phillies, I always felt like, hmm, they're pretty conservative setting runners on the base paths. And, but, you know, I don't really hold my anecdotal opinion in any value, but then I saw that they were low on that send rate list and it was kind of confirmed. So yeah, I'll be watching for that stuff extra closely. Sarah's a Phillies fan. Certainly people can watch for their teams. As you mentioned, the A's being one to watch before. Were there any other teams to watch? Yeah, the Blue Jays were high senders and low thrown outers, which I didn't mention on this podcast, but in the conference. So the Blue Jays are a good one to look out for. Sarah has been with the company a little bit more than a year now. She was product of an interesting discovery on our part. There's a Women Belong in Baseball Facebook group that I would certainly recommend that people check out. Sarah was a member of that and found out about us through them. Curious why you're at, at SIS. Yeah, so SIS, as you and I know, has been at the forefront of baseball analytics since the early 2000s, which is certainly super cool. But I especially like the fact that It's possible that some model I built somewhere along the way could be helping a team draft a difference maker or win a few more games than expected. And, you know, I could have a hand of that as small as that hand may be. Cool. Sarah Thompson, thanks for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. Thanks, Mark. And this wraps up this week's episode. We'll be back in two weeks to have an episode for opening day. Psyched for that. For Veronica Alvarez, Tess Ruskin, Sarah Thompson, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.